0: When Jackie and I were in high school, we had a track coach who was, who was both active, active duty Navy and who was at one time in the, the Olympic trials for, for sprinting. He was driven, he was passionate, he was set on training the team well. One of his most effective coaching tools was a two-word mantra, you could call it a cheer You can call it whatever you want, but he used this to spur the whole team, no matter their skill level, no matter what kind of race, distance, short distance, sprinting, whatever, just two words, which you heard ringing out from a distance as you were wearing down in practice or during the actual race. Finish it. Finish it. When a runner's mind or body is telling them to slow down and reminding them how hard the strain is, those two words were meant to bring focus. They were meant to bring motivation. Finish it. Lots of things can happen in the course of the race, whether pain or discouragement, but those two words helped runners snap out of it and set their attention on exactly that, finishing the race, which is all a runner is meant to be concerned about. If for some reason I was limited to two words to summarize the text this morning, those are the two words I'd use, finish it. Not as a cold command, but as this inspirational encouragement for all of us running an important race with a clear prize. Now Paul is using similar language of his own to inspire us toward the end goal of Christ. Since finish it doesn't really explain much for us. Here's another nutshell statement. The risen Christ who has made you his own will raise you up and will be yours forever. So press on to the prize of gaining him. We're so quick to slow down. The cares of this life choke out the glory of the next. We miss the days when we felt on fire for Christ. We, we felt close to him. Or we long to be out from under this season of suffering. We feel like all Jesus is good for is saving me from my sins, and then I just need to wait it out until things get better. And he wraps up the story. Or sometimes we might think that our relationship with Christ is this project. We focus on it, we tweak it here and there, and then it's back into the closet until we take it out and tweak it a little and then we retire it for a while again, rather than a race that we are currently, actively, prayerfully, joyfully amid sorrows, running in faith. Church, we all have a need to press on, to finish it, whether, whether we've just started or we find ourselves inching closer to that finish line. The risen Christ who has made you his own will raise you up and will be yours forever. So, press on towards the prize of gaining him. Paul gives gives four ways or or reasons to press on. The first is press on towards Christ without presumption. Press on towards Christ without presumption. He says this in verse 10. His his goal of, of what we talked about last week, him putting his his accomplishments behind him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We talked a little bit about that last week, that insatiable desire for Paul to know Christ. I must know him. I must know him, Not, not just book knowledge, I must know him experientially. I'm a, I, I want to, to experience and, and um, be that close to him to where I can say I, I know him. I know him as much as I'm able to know him. He wanted to know him in a deep re, deeply real way such that he would lose everything that gave him a self-righteous leg up because of his religiosity or his prowess or pedigree Knowing Christ meant believing him for righteousness, knowing the power of his resurrection and sharing in Jesus' humble sufferings. He wanted to know Jesus in the truest way, which, which means that he was going to fall right in line behind his Savior who humbled himself to the point of death, chapter two, who subjected himself to pain and misery and mockery on the cross in an effort to glorify his Father and save others. Paul will not avoid knowing Jesus in that way. In fact, he seems, seems like he sees that as necessary for knowing Jesus truly. So I, I wanted to take a few more minutes on last week's text, verses 10-11, before we move on. Paul's telling the Philippians that we will, he will stop at nothing to know Jesus' power. He refuses to ignore the fact that the Christian life involves suffering from the master in some form. If he's compelled by the love of Christ to tell a dark world about the good news, he knows he will face some sort of opposition from people blinded by the God of this world and from the God of this world himself who is intent on deceiving, who is dead set on dissuading Paul from fully knowing Jesus. That's why he says those two things back to back. I want to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Those two things are equal and they are not reserved for for Apostles. Paul's laying this out for us to invite us to follow, follow Paul, follow Paul who's following Christ and know Jesus the way that he is set on knowing Jesus because there's there's surpassing worth there, says Paul. There's surpassing worth in knowing Jesus. Share in Jesus' sufferings, know what it's like to lay down your life for the sake of others and you will know Jesus' power more than you could imagine. Humbly pursue others with the gospel and you will know a bit more of what Jesus has done in humbly pursuing you and obeying the Father even to the point of death. The interesting thing here is that Paul sees imitating Christ in this way as the road which leads to the resurrection. He's desperate to be raised up. He told us early in the letter, my desire is to depart and be with Christ that's far better for me. So we know, we know what he wants, but what about that phrase, by any means possible? Why, why doesn't he say, I just I just want the resurrection? I just want the resurrection. He says, I want to, I want to get I want to get there by any means possible. Isn't there only one means? Isn't there only one way to that day Into that moment? Is he questioning his own salvation? Shouldn't he, of all people, feel like a shoe in for the resurrection? If Paul can't be sure of that, how can I be sure that all the ups and downs and wanderings of my life will somehow lead to the resurrection? Well, you have to notice that Paul's not shaking in his boots about whether he or any other believer in Christ, including the Philippian church, will reach the resurrection. On the contrary, he says things like this in other places. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. No ifs, ands, buts. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe, you'll be saved, both now and at the resurrection from the dead. And in Acts 16, he even told the the Philippian jailer, one of the people who was reading this letter, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So why the urgency of reaching the resurrection by any means possible? Well, I'll explain it with a little bit of an illustration. You, you tell me which of these verses reflects pedal to the metal, cruise control, or reckless driving. 1 Corinthians 15:1 through 2. Pedal to the metal, cruise control, or reckless driving. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, I'm not going to ask you, but that last statement makes me think cruise control. Someone who has let off the gas and has folded their hands, is comfortable, he doesn't see much concern in holding fast to the word that Paul preached to them. And so I want to say to those who've, who are ready to check out if you're at a place where you feel like, I'm just about done, don't check out. This is, this is an invitation this morning, as we'll get to in a minute, to re enter the race, to get back running because. It's possible somehow for you to believe in vain that the faith that you maybe thought you had wasn't true because you've, you've let go of this beautiful gospel, this wonderful message of Jesus dying, rising from the dead to, to claim your life and to follow him with everything that you have. Here's another one. This is just a few verses later that, that we'll talk about next week. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. How? With minds set on earthly things. Which of the three options is this? But reckless, reckless driving. This is for those who have not yet believed in Christ. Paul is sitting here weeping over you. You're walking as an enemy of the cross of Christ. You're walking as an enemy of, of the God who has bent to save you, to deliver you from that burden of sin and guilt, to bring you to the resurrection so that he can live with you forever. I have to tell you that there's not a person in this room, not myself, not anyone else, who can convince you and make you want Jesus and his salvation more than whatever your life is about right now. It's only through the Spirit of God to ask him, show me. Show me that there's surpassing worth in Jesus. Show me that he's better than than whatever I'm chasing after. No one can convince you of that. And yet the invitation is the same. Come enter the race. Believe in Jesus. Believe that, that this Jesus you might hear about Easter and and how a resurrection and coming back from the dead sounds. It sounds like one of the strangest things you've ever heard. Why why do we come to church on Easter? It's because this like like Tom had read earlier. This is an account of history that had the most significance for us than we could imagine. Because with Jesus conquering death, it means that can be true for us as well. Death does not have to have the final word and the only requirement is that you would believe and you will be saved. Now those are two of the three examples, cruise control and reckless driving. And Paul's saying, I'm not willing to be any of those. I'm not willing to let up or go off the rails or kick back. In fact, I'm trusting the one who began this work in me to keep me facing forward with a particular zeal. And I know that he will do the same for you, Philippians, and he will do the same for you, Sovereign Grace Church Dayton. So that leaves the pedal to the metal scenario. And how does, how does Scripture describe that? Hebrews 6.14 for we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end. Now don't, don't misunderstand me. Pedal to the metal is just an illustration. That's all. It's just an illustration. But the point is holding fast our original confidence, that commitment. If you're pedal to the metal, you're all in. It's, it's not like you're gonna ease into it. Holding fast our original confidence. Not swerving from it, not holding it loosely. Here's another example from Colossians 1. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to do what? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, Again, that's not to say that doubting means you're doomed. I know there there are probably many in this room who wonder, if holding fast is what's required, how am I going to make it? It's not to say that, that doubting means you're doomed. It's to say that you've not abandoned the hope of the gospel that you heard. Maybe it's been years ago since you were born again, since you saw Jesus as that great treasure? Are you still holding on to it and believing this gospel of Jesus Christ? If you are, I praise God that he is keeping you in a place of stability and steadfastness and you can draw confidence from that. Because the que- question isn't whether or not you can keep your salvation or just grit and bear things on your own. It's that if you continue in the faith, it is proof of, that the Father has not lost you. He will not lose a single sheep from his hand. We call it the perseverance of the saints. He will complete his work. He will present you blameless if you are in Christ. We don't need to worry so long as we go on believing in him. So, run within that assurance that he will keep you till the end. Face forward on the gas, racing towards that resurrection with all focus and energy, which we'll talk about in a moment, live that way rather than presuming upon God, like he bailed me out, now I'm all clear. That's certainly not the life that Paul is advocating for. So rather rather than that, rather than letting up or letting your guard down against the enticements of sin, the worship of self, that hardness of heart towards the spirit a crippling fear of siding with Christ or letting in the poisonous root of bitterness or any of those things that might draw your heart away from the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, by any means possible, not not because he thinks it's this coin toss, heads or tails, I don't know which one it'll be. He's not the Muslim hoping that Allah will be gracious to them in the end or the spiritually blind person who thinks that God will let them off the hook. Rather, he's someone who is certain that the resurrection is that last step before he has the surpassingly worthy one, Jesus, in his arms. The grace of God is sufficient to carry him there, but he's not kicking back in the meantime, presuming that God doesn't care about the in-between. He will not let that presumption keep him from setting his course on Christ and going full speed ahead. Being with Christ is far better, he says. That pull is strong for Paul. Can that pull be strong for us? I'd say yes, absolutely. Such that we can say that by any means possible, I may attain that resurrection from the dead. I, I don't want to look away from it. I don't, I don't want to lose sight that that's, that's where we're headed. That's where we're going towards. But that It's just the tip of the iceberg and the beginning of this relentless pursuit that Paul describes in this passage. So press press on towards Christ without presumption, but also press on towards Christ because Jesus has laid hold of you. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So not that I have already obtained this. Paul Paul hasn't known Christ fully yet. He's still in process. He told the Philippians in the first chapter that they were partakers of grace with him. There's not this big discrepancy between Paul and the rest of the Christians. He's just like them and he has not yet arrived. And yet he's dead set on knowing Christ and is inviting every Christian reading this letter to come along with him. Remember, he loves the Philippians. He prays for them. He thanks God for them. And he's saying, listen, here's, here's what I'm doing. I'm pressing on to make this future, this knowing Christ deeply and truly my own. So you come, come along. Now, what does he mean by the word perfect? I haven't obtained this or am already perfect. Is he saying I'm not a perfect person, as in like morally perfect? Or is he saying something else. I think he's saying something different than that. When Paul uses that word elsewhere, it has to do with completeness. I haven't already come to this full knowledge of Christ, nor am I complete in my experience of him or my enjoyment of him. That's reassuring because aren't we all, aren't we all not yet perfect and complete in our understanding or our or knowing the significance and the worth of Christ, the, the apostle humbly admits that I have not yet arrived. I haven't obtained this full knowledge of Christ that only being raised from the dead could afford me. I have more to know and experience about Jesus. This is a man who, who visibly saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, who saw visions of heaven, saw miracles, who healed people, who performed miracles, and who himself is writing inspired scripture. And he's saying, I really do know him, but there's a difference between knowing him now and knowing him then. I'm still growing in knowing Christ. There's more to be had of Jesus. Paul is hungry for more, and his hunger will continue his whole life until, until what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have already been fully known. Even though Paul is knowing Jesus more and more as an imprisoned preacher of the good news, he presses on towards Christ, towards knowing him firsthand. Why? We talked about it last week, because there's a surpassing worth here in knowing Christ But there's also this personal side to it. Why press on? Why continue on? Because I look back and see, Christ Jesus has made me his own. That phrase, made me his own, is a sort of apprehending. He has laid hold of me. He has taken hold of me. He has made me his. And what does that do to Paul? It is the spark that lit the flame, so to speak, Jesus has already at a particular point made me his own, and I can't get over that. Have you gotten over that? Is it old news for you? Let it be fresh this morning. Let's you and I together wake up. We're celebrating Easter Sunday, a celebration of Jesus' resurrection and the start of his conquest against death. So let this truth rest on you this morning the risen Christ, the one who lives has made you his own. He has laid his life down for you and he took it up in power. You once belonged to the kingdom of darkness under Satan's rule and were polluted by your own sin, bound for hell. And in order to pull you out of that, Jesus hung on a cross and was obedient in every way to the point of death. There truly was a a point where Jesus stopped breathing, his heart stopped pumping, and he was buried in a tomb. But just as he had us in mind at the cross, this is something that for me has been difficult. I see see myself with him at the cross. Yes, he he paid for my sins. That's that's the only thing that could, could count for anything. It's Jesus' blood. But just as he had us in mind on that cross, oh, he had you in mind when he quietly secretly but victoriously started breathing again in that tomb and he walked out of it and years later when the good news about the risen messiah reached your ears god did something amazing he delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin you are mine, and I will, I will take you, all you who believe in me. I will forcibly remove you from that domain of darkness and joyfully transfer you to the kingdom of who? My beloved Son, the risen one, in whom you and I have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. There is no other name in heaven and earth by which we must be saved. It's Jesus, the risen Christ, who made you his own. You've loved us like you loved your son. We're heirs with Christ, bought by his blood. Oh, how great the love that we've been shown. We're your children now. You made us your own. How how are we to respond to that, except with what Paul's describing here, with sustained effort by the power of the Holy Spirit to press on until that long sought after day when we don't have to strain or squint or strive Wishing we could see the one we've believed in. Because we will know him like you know the spouse or the friend right next to you. Visibly, clearly, fully. We have all the reason in the world to keep pressing on because of this one reason. Jesus has made you his own. And he has opened that door for you to freely and gladly and joyfully say, I want to make you my own. I are, you already are mine, but but I'm not stopping. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna settle or or rest or be satisfied. I, fr- I want to press on towards Christ because I know that that Christ has made me His. Another reason or or example of pressing on is press on towards Christ, our prize. Kind of already touched on that a little bit. But Paul says this, brothers. I do not consider that I have made that my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what, what is Paul making his own? I've already hinted at a, a bunch, but he explains it a little bit here. The goal is what he's reaching for The finish line, so to speak, and the prize is standing on the podium and receiving the medal. He's clear that he hasn't reached either of those moments yet. He hasn't finished the race and he hasn't obtained the prize. So he's showing the Philippian church what to do when you haven't yet experienced or known the fullness of Christ like you will one day, which all of us will be in that boat. We have not known Christ in the way that we long to know him. So, what do we do in the meantime? so that 's where Paul brings in this, this illustration he 's talking in terms of a runner in the Olympic Games, someone running for a distinct honor. Paul, Paul might have had a front row seat. The, the Olympics had been around for several hundred years before Paul on the scene, but he is he is in that part of the world where the Olympic Games was, was the Entertainment, the celebration, and all the commotion, and and how many people would know exactly what he's talking about? This runner who is giving their all for that prize, that final prize. So that's why he uses these strong words. But but if I could condense them down to one, I think I think one of the best words that the English language, with all, all of its quirks, has ever produced is stick-to-itiveness, you don't even need a dictionary to know what this word means. Stick to it-iveness. If someone is persistent or determined, they have some major sticktutiveness. Spiritual stictuatives <laughs> might need the pronunciation marks on it to help to help me. Spiritual sticktutiveness is what Paul is talking about here. And he uses some, some strong words. So let's see what, what his choice of words is like, because mine, mine don't matter comparatively. His pursuit of the finish line and the prize is described in terms of forgetting what lies behind, straining, pressing on. And that's what he's resolved to do. He says, I, I do one thing, uh, and yet he mentions a couple of pieces to that one thing. To press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call, but doing so involves forgetting what lies behind me. That's, that's what he was talking about last week. I, I'm purposefully choosing to not rely on any, any progress up to this point. I'm not relying on any of the things that put a, put a tick mark on my, on my record or, or a, like a, a star or anything like that. Forgetting all that, I'm not looking around and comparing myself to other people. Runners know that this, the moment you look behind is the moment you lost the race. Um, Paul is talking about this 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 focused race. It's just me and the finish line. So he's forgetting past achievements, also past failures, forgetting that, and he's choosing to strain forward to what's ahead. He's pressing on. It's, it's intense language. I pray, may Jesus himself been build into each of us this resolve. I will not hold back on pursuing him. If you're in a place where you feel like you've, you've lost a grip on your purpose or, or even just the exceedingly valuable goal of your life as a Christian, may this Easter Sunday serve as a reminder, the risen Jesus is the greatest prize of all. You, you might be caught in this moment in your life and other things feel very important. But take, take a look at the whole. Take a look at the whole of this race, race that you're running. Whether, whether you have another day or whether you have another 60 years ahead of you, Jesus is a prize worth running tirelessly for. A prize so powerful that he himself, like a magnet, will bring you to himself. It will bring you to the end. And Paul, Paul talks similarly in a couple other places in Scripture. 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end we toil and we strive. Because why? We have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. There's a toiling, a striving. I've set my hope ahead of me, and I'm, I'm chasing it because he has given me very precious promises that say it will be true. It will be true one day for you. In Hebrews 4, the writer's talking about the, the promised land and the rest that Israel either, either missed out on and only a few experienced, but he's also talking about that eternal rest. Let us therefore strive, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, don't hear me saying, or these verses particularly, saying you determine, your striving determines whether you enter the rest or not in a, in a formal sense, in the sense that I just got to get in. I just got to be the last person in before the door closes. That's, that's not what any, either Paul or the writer of Hebrews is talking about. It's saying the rest is ahead, The rest is ahead. Jesus has made you his own. What is the middle supposed to look like? Pressing on towards that greater moment, that rest that you will have one day. I think think the reason why these calls are in scripture for us is one, to beware the hardening of sin, that it can encase our hearts and, and we can turn a blind eye so much and become so convinced that that Jesus is not surpassingly worthy, that we fall by the same sort of disobedience like the Israelites did. So I think these are here for that reason, but also so that you, faithful believer, who is, who's just, whether you're weary, whether you're still pressing on, whether, whether you're just trying to get your feet under yourselves, you're not gonna get caught in limbo between him making you his own and him raising you up on the last day. He's not, he's not just like so enthralled or preoccupied with those two things that you get lost in translation. As if you were, as if you were uh, part of an, a list of inventory and something gets dropped in the numbers. No. Strive to enter that rest. Strive. Press on. Our hope is set. The goal is finishing the race, but the prize, so that the goal would be that finish line. The prize itself, Paul describes as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's referring to the fact that God has called Paul and us to himself and has saved us in Christ. So Paul wants the prize of being in heaven where God dwells, where he will finally gain Christ in the fullest way. And here's here's another place where he uses that running picture that helps helps us a bit. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he's using this picture of running, and he's not saying, hey, you beat out the other people. He's saying, be concerned with with running for the prize. Be concerned with obtaining the prize, first and foremost. Some of you might recognize the name Mo Farah. Mo Farah is one of the most decorated male track athletes in the world. He's earned the nickname Mobot because the man is astonishing to watch. For, for 5,000 meters or 10,000 meters, he runs with skill and control. Athletes, professional athletes, exercise unbelievable self-control. Actually, all athletes for that matter with their bodies, the self-control with their bodies mixed with pure determination. So, if you want a little bit of a theology of sports, Paul's saying, when you see exceptional athletes with their skill and control and determination, seek to run the race of your faith like that. Like, he's, he's pulling from the Olympic Games and seeing, I'm watching these runners and saying, their, their laser focus is on that prize. That's, that's so much like me pursuing Christ. Determination, self-control. Uh, uh, runners, if, if, if their arms and legs aren't in a fluid motion, you're losing energy. You're, you are, you're not putting that energy towards forward motion. It actually, it pulls you back. It keeps you from running successfully and as uh, skillfully. So he's saying, I don't box beating the air, I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm focused, I'm, I'm disciplined. So, like Mo Farah, with a final kick, the last 100 meters, or running or playing until the final minutes, the final set, the final point, that's, that's what we're meant to do as Christians, and to do so with clear-cut, determined effort, being convinced of what you're running for. The prize of this race is not just heaven, for example. The prize of this race is not just freedom from the curse, from the pain that I feel. Yes, it involves both. It involves so many wonderful things, but the prize is Christ himself. So I'd ask you, is there something you're running for? Can you identify it? Even if it's a good life goal right now, Run for the true prize. Don't run for something that's lackluster when put side by side with Christ. Paul is saying, I'm headed that way. There is a finish line, but beyond that finish line is Jesus. I want, it is better to be with him. I want to be with him. There's surpassing worth. He's used these terms to say nothing compares. Nothing compares to the moment when I myself will Have Jesus. Scripture talks about us right now. We we say, we haven't seen him and yet you've believed. How much more rejoicing is there going to be when you see him? So we press on towards Christ as our prize. And the final point, press on towards Christ in growing maturity. Verse 15, he says this, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul sees maturity through the the lens of thinking this way. What's, What's this way? I think it's more than just what he just described. I think it's reaching back a little further. In other words, let the mature... Think like I'm thinking, Paul says, with an eternal perspective and a heart full of love for God and love for others, ready to count all past advantages as loss, having a humble mind like that of our sacrificial Savior. This is how the mature think. And if there are areas of your life about which you think differently than that, which there are in all of us, Paul doesn't feel the need to address every little thing. He does have confidence in the one who's going to complete the work that he started in you. He says, God will reveal that. God is the one at work in the Philippian church. He's the one at work in our church. So lest lest we think either ourselves or someone else in this church needs to hurry up in this process of loving Christ and loving one another, God will reveal that. He will complete this work. And that's why, that's why we as pastors feel very little pressure for things to come from the top, top down all the time. There's, there's no church control room where your pastors are, are monitoring and tweaking and trying to strategically change anyone. We're called to feed and shepherd and protect the flock of God. But any growth, any conformity to Christ, any amount of love that abounds more and more like Paul prayed at the beginning of the book, any love that abounds more and more between us is purely the work of God as the body builds itself up in love, as Ephesians 4 says. So God will reveal to each of us, whether directly or through other members of the body, through one another, that we're not thinking along the same lines as Paul here at various points of our life. We're not, we're not acting in a way that has our focus set, that we're striving or or. Does that really resemble the the humbled to the point of death Jesus that we love and who has saved us? But there's no pressure to micromanage for Paul. We trust the cheap shepherd with this flock, this body. As we're growing in this maturity and as the Spirit is changing us, let's not lose ground. Let's not regress as he says there at the end, let us hold true to what we have attained. I think that's specifically talking about he sees things in the Philippian church that are going well. He sees maybe they're, they're working on the disagreements that they are experiencing. Um, uh, maybe, maybe they're withstanding a bit more of the persecution. He's saying, let's hold true to what we've attained. Let's, let's keep that ground. Let's, let's continue on. <laughs> now, all of that begs the question that Many of you might, might be wondering, how should we press on? How? We're saying, press on for the prize, press on towards maturity, press on because Jesus made me his own. What does pressing on look like? And I, 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 tr- I trust that the Spirit will work among us to, to kind of determine maybe some of the specifics for what is pressing on for me look like right now? What is what a, a devoted, single minded focus to, to reaching? Christ to, to knowing him finally and fully. But I, I will give two just broad examples that we, can, that we can kind of apply here. The first is, how should we press on? By not being satisfied with our experience or knowledge of or pursuit of Christ. I think too easily, I can be like, wow, the Lord has, Lord has done something. When I look back and I see where, I, where, where we were, where I was, Ten years ago, whatever whatever it might be, it's like, oh, thank you, Lord, that that you've changed things, and that I know you a bit more, and, and I've experienced you in this way. However, that's not that's not what Paul's describing. Paul, like I said, he saw Jesus, he experienced and performed miracles. He's writing scripture. He's he's not saying, wow, like look at all that. That's part of what he's describing about forgetting forgetting what lies behind me, I'm still going to keep pressing on because there is, there is far more to Jesus than what I know right now. There is far more to experiencing the depth of his love than I've experienced right now, the fullness of, of his forgiveness that I know right now. I don't want to be satisfied with, with crumbs when I, when I eventually one day will have a feast. Can there be more than those crumbs right now? Can Jesus, can I know you in this pit and valley of suffering? Can can you prove to me that, that that you can convince someone who's in that place that you love them, that you are sovereign over everything that's going on in my life? I want to know you that way. I want to know that you hear my Christ. Will you answer my prayer? Will you heal this person, Lord? I want to experience the power of Christ in that way and suffering. So don't be satisfied right now. There is more for us. There's, there's more, I'm convinced, there's more for each one of us to know Christ more fully, to experience the joy of being his. So that's the first one. But another one is encouraging one another with eternity in view. Now I have to say this, that on, on our behalf, I think we can all say, we need to grow in this. Because if out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, we want eternity to be our goal, our, that finish line. And we want it to be in our hearts such that out of the abundance of that, with a laser focus on the prize of Christ when we are raised from the dead, we need to be speaking that to one another. Like I said earlier, the truth is that the resurrection of Jesus that first glorious resurrection and our resurrection specifically in the future are some of the strangest things that Christians could ever believe. To the, to the world, they seem like the most outlandish pieces of the puzzle, which is why I think that we are often in a place where even, even among one another, even among Christians who believe the same thing as you do, I, I don't know if that applies right now. I, I, don't, like, I don't want to talk that way. However, Scripture kind of speaks a little bit differently, uh, which we'll, we'll come to in the benediction, but the, Th- the Thessalonians are wondering, where have all the people gone that have died since Christ rose up? Paul, what's happening? And he's saying, don't, don't lose heart. Don't weep as the world weeps. Rather, Christ is going to come. You're going to meet him in the clouds. So, so what? Encourage one another with these words. And we share that responsibility to one another to to keep the resurrection in view. Like like we had talked about in to die is gain for Paul. Let's let's talk that way. Let's let's let the Spirit fill our hearts with an assurance that this is what's coming. Assure one another. And that's not a cheap way to say, uh, don't worry, it's going to be okay. We'll be raised up in the end. But rather, as we come alongside one another, especially in suffering, to say, I know this is exceedingly difficult. But there is a surpassing weight of glory ahead of us. Let's go, come, let's press on. I know everything in you wants to quit, but let's press on. Let's, let's think about what's one step beyond that finish line for us. In a song, I've been listening to regularly has kind of served to do this for me personally, and I, and I hope that it just gives an example of how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to encourage one another that way? It's it's using the picture of of a ship. It's called Almost Home. It says, "Don't drop a single anchor. Don't don't plant here. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone?" No stopping now, we're almost home. That promised land ahead of us is calling, we're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then, we're almost home. Make ready now our souls for the kingdom it comes. No turning back, forget what lies behind us, we're almost home. This journey is ours together, we're almost home. Unto that great forever, we're almost home. What song anew will sing? What's one step beyond the finish line? Around that happy throne. Come, faint of heart. We're almost home. Almost home. We're almost home. So press on. Press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord. We're almost home. And friends, it's not, it's not just the aging among us who need that. It's the 18 to 30s that we just talked about talked about, we raised their hands, they need to know just as well there's something to press on to. We are headed that way together. We are headed that way, and it's because Jesus rose from the dead that we can even think about it. So the risen Christ who has made you his own will raise you up. Assure one another of that. He will be yours forever. So press on towards the prize of gaining him. In other words, finish it. Our king is alive. He rose on the third day and will actually and powerfully raise you up from the dead so that he can live with you and you with him forever. Finish it. Keep going. Press on.